So, David, thanks very much for joining us today. We'll jump straight in. Um, you've recently directed the semi-autobiographical sitcom Josh. How difficult was that to direct, knowing that the actor was also the writer? Josh is obviously different from Josh Widdicombe himself. Uh, it's like, because uh, Josh Widdicombe is very successful and the character Josh isn't successful. So it takes the sort of uh, bits of Josh obviously are part of him uh whenever anyone writes something it's it's part of them but it exaggerates the part of josh widdicombe uh that is that gets into trouble or stuff um or you know that life is against him um but it's not necessarily he's not really playing himself um he's thinking of situations maybe that he's never been in or it's it's very fictionalized it might be a situation that's happened to someone else or a situation that's completely invented. So the character is physically him. So it's a sort of short Devon, uh, short Devonian um, uh, stand-up, but it's one who uh, gets into a lot more scrapes than Josh. So it is Josh and it isn't Josh. Clearly the two of them, if they were in a room, they look identical. Um, but uh, we go for whatever the comedy is, and uh, and Josh and the sitcom is always the the more he can have a disaster happen to him, um, the better it is. And so that's so Josh is playing a character even though it's him. Really. So I never think, oh, dear, these this is this is you, Josh. It sometimes gets a bit weird when you go. I, I, no, I think I mean Josh is such an idiot that he would do something. So oh, not you, mate. Not you, mate. It's it's. I mean the character Josh. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean we all know that, and we all you know Josh Widdicombe would say, oh, "I would be great if if if." Well, I suppose he does say it'd be great if I got into a terrible trouble with blah blah blah. Um, but we, I know when I'm saying, "Oh, why well, can't we get Josh to lose his head in a terrible car accident?" Everyone knows that I'm not talking about Josh Widdicombe. Early in your career, you jostled with some live comedy. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I did. So I did stand up for three years. Um, it, it's, I mean, it, it was, it's great. I do love live comedy, and there is nothing like that sort of instantaneous reaction that you get. Um, I just, I don't think I'm lazy, but I just, I'm not. I, I get tired. I get tired at night. I don't like the late nights. I don't like the traveling. Uh, so it wasn't really um, that sort of life on the road that you have when you're a stand-up. Um, it wasn't really for me. It's very gladiatorial, which can be great. You know, you get out on the stage, and if it goes well, then there's nothing like it. Um, if it doesn't quite take off, then, you know, there's... Um, are we allowed to swear in your podcast? Oh, Yes big thumbs up for swearing um well there's there was two occasions when i was doing stand-up where um, i was introduced and before i'd even got to the mic this is big swearing so just to warn you uh, before i'd even got to the mic someone shouted out big nose cunt uh, and uh, <laughs> i've not even done anything yet give us a chance um but and one of those was the best gig the best live gig i ever done because i just ran with it and i just you know i was just doing you know just dealing with a heckler and it's everyone was really up for it and then another one which was at the comedy store i just i just thought it was towards the end of when i was doing stand i just thought oh no i haven't even made it to the mic yet and and so i didn't 
it didn't take off and it just felt like oh bloody hell um so that's the sort of thing that can be incredibly exciting and you can't you know if i'm doing a, th- a thing on tv uh, as a director I'm, I'm rarely called big nose cunt to my face anyway um but uh you know so you don't get that excitement that you get when it goes really well but um you know it's a sort of I, I, you know some people just love the stand-up and and I, I you know it's all right but i didn't didn't it wasn't going to be for me forever in 1991 you appeared in armando ianucci's influential radio force booth on the hour which later became the day-to-day how do you think this show used the medium of radio to its full potential uh, yeah cool yeah um so yeah so uh, I mean, I was in the pilot of On The Hour and then went on to On The Hour. And I think what's brilliant about Armando is that he takes a medium and then he shakes it up. And that's the brilliant thing was that the realism of it. So we would get complaints uh, from listeners who thought it was real. And I thought that's that's where... Um, Armando and the style that he brings, whether it's to radio or to TV or to film, that sort of realism did shake things up. Uh, I mean, I think on the radio, you know, we would always think when writing it, you know, there's some stuff that you couldn't do in TV because it's huge, you know, would be so expensive to make, but you know, the, the, the soundscape creates that. And so that's, that's, that's all good radio pushes, pushes in that way. But I think what uh, on the hour did was it pushed the, the believability so it meant that if you listen to it you thought is this is this the news is this a real program um same with partridge like knowing me knowing you when we first did that on the radio and um, i don't know if you know there was uh so there's an ep- uh, an episode where partridge ends up uh, hitting a kid uh, and we got loads of letters in from radio 4 listeners furious that this man was still broadcasting the next week and how why wasn't he taken off the air because he hit a kid uh, and the, that's the that's very satisfying because what we what we done was make it incredibly believable. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's the main thing that we we did with on the hour was the believability. And then you saw on TV uh, that we did with Day to Day and Partridge. And then the Office came in, and it became the norm to um, to just do comedy that was incredibly believable. None of this sort of winking at the camera that, that you had before there. Why do you think Chris Morris's work always has that ability to ignite a reaction from his audience? So the brilliant thing about Chris Morris and Armando as well, I think, but Chris is very, very rigorous and brutal and honest uh, and cannot bear hypocrisy or any sense of smugness that isn't earned. Uh, and so he just knows how to go for the throat. And once he once he feels that he's on the right side of something, um, he will go to the nth degree. And I think that's why he's so brilliant and so extreme um, and why his comedy is so great. I mean, if you look at the paedophile special, uh, I don't think anyone else would have been brave enough to do that. But Chris goes, right, this is where I stand on this matter. And I'm now going to just well, my metaphor's going to crash. I'm now going to run as far as I can from where I stand. It's, it's, yeah, my metaphor did crash. But it's like he's just absolutely ruthless about pursuing uh, what he wants to do comedically. And I think that's why he, he gets that reaction. You know, he has no fear. 
I mean, you look at him, whether it's uh, interviewing a celebrity and getting them to say certain things or whether it's like um, going and standing in Brixton and buying drugs with stupid names, Clarky Cat or whatever, Shatner's Bassoon, whatever it was. Um, uh, oh no, Shatner's Bassoon wasn't that. Anyway, some um, expert geeky person will tell you what uh, the day-to-day uh, stuff was. But, um, but whatever he's like, whatever he is, whatever he does, he's ruthlessly goes... As the football managers would say, 110%. And I think that's what, um, that's what makes him so special. You appeared as Tony Hayes in the infamous I'm Alan Partridge scene, which ultimately results in Alan thrusting cheese in your face. Tell us a little about the process of creating a hilarious scene such as this. Uh, yeah, OK. Um, so in the smell my cheese scene, obviously very famous, uh, iconic. I'm actually myself, which feels a bit self-indulgent posted uh, memes from that scene like the partridge shrug you know um uh great scene and and then we put together like how everything else was put together um uh, in the stuff we did which improv improv then write write a rough sort of um shape of it then we go and improv it again uh write it up a bit more look at the what we've written up improv again and so it's constantly improvised so there would be even when we're filming it, there'd be an element of improvisation. But when you look at the sort of monkey tennis, the list of all the shows, they would have been written. So, so there's an element where to keep it feeling real, you can improvise. I mean, I remember at the time um, uh, when he put the cheese in my face and then uh, the waiter, I don't think it made it in the final cut, but the waiter sort of holds him back uh, and uh, Partridge, Steve, uh, improvised, all right, Rambo, which is such a, Partridge, you know, it's a terrible film from the 1990s, 1980s, whatever. It's a very partridgey thing that wasn't in the script, but it's just felt right. Um, and so there's always that freedom to improvise, but at the same time, uh, there, there'd be those sort of pegs where you knew that there was some scripted stuff. So, like all the um, uh, Chaz and Dave, what is it, the arm wrestling with Chaz and Dave, or whatever it is, inner city sumo, there, some of them were pre-recorded uh, sorry pre-scripted you played Daniel in the play The Eleventh Commandment was that based on the Geoffrey Archer novel and did you ever have any reservations when you were fulfilling the role uh, yeah that, that so The Eleventh Commandment wasn't based on the Geoffrey Archer novel uh, it was a play that I wrote myself uh, and uh, and yeah it was it was all me Geoffrey Archer I don't know whether he's claiming ownership but I will, you know, he'll have to go through the courts and I'm confident that I will win. So, it was, yeah, it was all me at the Hampstead Theatre. Um, it was a little, yeah, it was, it was a good show. Uh, I did write the scene where uh, I'm in bed with this girl and uh, my mother, I hasten to add, not my real mother, uh, appears in bed because I've got these sort of Woody Allen type complexes. So that was a strange thing to write yourself a sex scene uh, and then to have your mother appear in it. So I, I admit that that's unusual. Uh, I'm not sure even Jeffrey Archer would have uh, imagined that. Um, but um, yeah, it was good. I was, I was proud of that, yeah. Since the dawn of television comedy, writers and directors have surrounded themselves with like-minded actors who they trust, in turn creating a sort of in-house stock company. Steve Coogan and Armando Iannucci did a similar thing with The Day to Day and I'm Alan Partridge. As an actor, what's the benefit of being involved in a group like this? Oh uh, yeah, that's great, great, great question. Um, yeah, so there's nothing to replace that feeling of when you're with pals, with friends, 
and you throw ideas about and there's a sense of you know each other and even if something's shit it won't matter because you'll trust each other and that's what the best sort of sketch group any in any field that's what, what works best that's like now you know i've got this social media company which is where i'm speaking to you from now and this, we try and apply the same thing where we all get on really well i try and make sure that the environment is great because if everyone's getting on well then they feel um, really creative and no one feels oh my god i've had the worst idea ever so so yeah it was fantastic that sort of thing where you know we all knew each other well we worked together a lot and we knew what our strengths and weaknesses were um and i remember because we did a, at that time we did a thing called friday night armistice which was a satire show presented by armando me and pete bainham uh who are all good friends uh produced by a really good friend of ours sarah smith as well and and we had a concept where we we said nobody said no it's like as if you're with your mates and you say let's go and get a um a 20 foot statue of michael jackson that bends over and the sun shines out of his ass uh and then no one said no to us and we got it um and it's like you're with your mates and you sort of forget that it's all about tv you're just having a laugh and it just happens to be for a tv show and that's i think where the best sort of tv happens and that's certainly what that that group was like um yeah very lucky and also you know it's, it's very privileged to be with such brilliant people um you know who i mean there was at least two occasions when we were improvising um things with the day-to-day -day where i lost pretty much i know to a certain degree control of my bladder with laughter uh, and uh some of some of that didn't go out it didn't go out there was six seven eight of us in the room who saw a thing that just I mean, i'm thinking for instance of um uh, steve coogan in the swimming pool in the day-to-day -day, um the swimming pool supervisor caretaker whatever it is and uh when he when he did that uh first improvised that it was about half an hour long uh and he went through all the years i mean when there's only a few of the years when he said you know i think what well, is it in 1987 no one died and he goes on and lists them all um and in the actual improv session he just went through every year and it was it was just terrifyingly funny and yeah so it's a it's a privilege to have been part of being been in a bunch of people who are so good and so funny she starred alongside jim broadbent claire skinner and beverly callard for the mid-90s series the peter principle where do you stand on the purpose of the studio sitcom in the 21st century uh yeah well these are good questions um i suppose there was a sort of era where and we were slightly with i'm alan partridge we were on the cusp because i'm alan partridge is very real but it does have a laughter track it was filmed in front of a, a studio audience armando did this thing where he um had a fourth wall so normally when you film in front of the studio audience as you can see on like mrs brown's boys there's like three walls and then there's the audience and uh armando had a fourth wall that lowered down so the audience couldn't see us they just had to look at their tv screens to try and get that sense of reality and i think there was a, a period where uh it was uh it was all about realism and where people just turn their backs on uh studio sitcoms um and there's certainly true one and i think what amanda was doing by having that fourth wall was to stop us listening to the laughter in the studio which makes it unreal because then you put in pauses that aren't like in reality um and so when you're doing realism studio laughter can spoil it um but I, I think, you know, if you look at, I mean, the IT crowd and there are certainly 
I mean, some of the great American sitcoms, Frasier and Seinfeld, you know, they are, um, they work with the studio audience. So studio audience can help give you a sense of pacing. If, if you if you play it, if you don't milk the studio audience too much, I'm sorry for miming, uh, milking a cow on Skype there. But if you um, if you don't milk uh, milk the reactions too much, uh, and you keep it real and keep the pace going, then um, a studio a studio sitcom can still work, like some of the greatest American sitcoms. Um, so now, yeah, I'm sort of interested again in whether you know. Um, I just recorded a little bit for. Um, uh, a pilot for Radio 4 um, about Twitter and, and social media. That was the tweet that was, went out this week, uh, available at an iPlayer near you now. But if you listen to it, um, you'll hear that there's, I, I couldn't record on the night, uh, so I pre-recorded mine, and uh, the pacing of it is very pacey, but the rest of the show is in a, in a studio audience, and you've got the audience laughter, and it feels like you're part of a, a club. And I, th I think if we get a series, then my bits, I'll make sure that I'm in the studio audience because just doing it without the studio audience felt a bit sort of sterile. Um, so there's something about a studio sitcom that can make you at home feel good. And whether you like Mrs. Brown's Boys or not, what's brilliant about it is that first shot uh, where you see the studio audience and it's like saying you're part of this party uh, and that they break the fourth wall and everything. Uh, so it has this sort of madcap uh, anarchy to it um, that um, a realistic sitcom can't have and I think that's one of the reasons why Mrs Brown's Boys does so well is because it's just huge and broad and it feels like a celebration whether you like it or not Looking back at your career what would you say your proudest achievement is? Gosh uh, what's my proudest achievement? Uh, I mean it, it has to be um, uh, there's a, a lot of stuff that all the stuff that I did in the 90s, whether it is, um, you know, whether it's uh, Alan Partridge or some of the stuff in the day today, being part of that, um, it would be hard to pick individual moments, but to have been part of that m makes me very proud. When when I see the, the effect it's had on the people who are watching then, um, people who loved it as kids or, you know, young adults and people who were inspired to go on and do comedy themselves by it, um, uh, so I'm sort of very proud of that. I am also, I, I am very proud of some of the sort of writing I've done. I mean, this new film that I've got coming out with Armando, uh, Death of Stalin, I'm very proud of because it sort of combines comedy and drama. Um, uh, and, you know, there's little bits, even directing, that's why I do love directing now, is that where you just get a performance out of someone and you just feel that's that's ace and you just feel you've all worked together everyone on set the actor yourself to to get a great performance um so yeah so there's lots of little moments that i feel oh that's so that's that all came together perfectly um but i suppose yeah it's the stuff we did in the 90s is so um significant i think and i enjoyed it so much that you know that's hard to hard to see past that so what's next for david schneider Yes. Uh, what's next for me? Uh, well, I've got so like I've got this film coming out, uh, The Death of Stalin. That's coming out in October. Uh, so I'll be interested in that. I've got so series three of Josh, which I'm directing in a couple of weeks. That starts, and 
and yeah, I've got the social media companies. It's very busy at the moment. Um, I mean, I, I, I think I'll probably do more film writing and directing. And I think my ultimate ambition is to direct a film that I've written. Um, but not so much. It's funny. I'm, you know, I'm not so much. Oh, I can't. I, I, I want to be an actor or I want to be on the screen. I'm really enjoying being behind the screen a little bit and being a sort of puppet and letting all the letting other people letting the younger letting the younger kids have a good time. Um, you know, and sort of being. I feel a bit like a football manager, sort of. T- you know, with younger players, and I quite like that thing. Um, you know, sort of. I'm I'm too I'm too old for it now. The old uh, on-screen stuff. Comedy is very, um, you know, comedy moves on quickly. That's why I love doing Josh, the sitcom, because there's these, um, this group of friends. I mean, Josh Ellis and Beatty, who are the leads, are really good friends. And it reminds me a lot of how I was with, you know, the day-to-day, this, this generation who are just improvising, having fun, working together. Um, so, yeah, that's, I'd, I'd like to do more of that, I think. <laughs> 